Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that, um, that your presence is with us here this morning, Father. And we're thankful that uh, when we gather together as a community of faith, uh, we just don't gather together as a club or, or as an interest group or just a bunch of people that want to spend time with one another, but that you promise that your presence is with us. That you promise that you work through our singing and through our readings and through our prayers and through our meditation of your word to change our hearts. So, Father, we pray that this morning. We pray that we would encounter you. That you would move aside all the things that would distract our hearts from seeing you here this morning, Father. And open our eyes to your greatness and your beauty and the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his glorious name. Amen. Many of you that um, know me uh, or have known me for a long time uh, know that for, for a long time I was a, a high school coach and uh, also a high school youth director. And because of that, I, was, I did all sorts of trips and, and, and mission trips and uh, uh, trips to different track meets all over the, the Northeast and all sorts of different trips. And through both of those roles, I spent so much time with lots of teenagers doing lots of fun things and lots of adventures, but I spent a ton of time in buses and vans, all right? Driving here, driving there, driving all over the East Coast, doing all sorts of things, driving all over the planet, it seemed like, hours upon hours of driving. And every once in a while, uh, that driving was made sweet because for whatever reason, the students, either the, the high school students in the youth ministry or the kids on the track team, would actually start singing with one another. I'll never forget one moment where we were driving home from a, a track meet in Washington, D.C. It was indoor track season in the middle of the winter, and we were driving home in a school bus that we'd packed with pretty much 80 students that were sweaty from a track meet. But everybody was in a really good mood because the team had done really well. And all of a sudden, as we're driving home, probably on the, on the D.C. Beltway, one kid starts singing. And that turns into two kids, and then it turns into three kids, and it turns into four kids. And all of a sudden, the entire bus is singing these songs together with one another. And kids who would normally never even speak to one another are now singing with one another in this really beautiful and great moment as they're traveling on the road. And I'll never forget that uh, for a really a long time. The psalms that we've been looking at are traveling psalms or traveling songs. They were used by God's people in ancient times to, to, to worship as they traveled. And if you were with us last week, when we started talking about this, we noticed that the, the people of God, God's people in the Old Testament, would have to travel back to Jerusalem, considered to be the holy city, for three different festivals throughout the year. And what they would do as they traveled is they would sing these songs. They're songs that are listed in Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And they are songs that God's people would sing on the road. Songs they would sing as they traveled. And as we saw last week, some of the psalms are full of joy and full of excitement and happiness. Kind of like what I experienced on that bus that night. But others are full of despair. And they're full of sadness. They're really kind of up and down, expressing the full range of emotion that God's people can have as they walk through this life of faith. They are full of despair, they are full of joy, and they show us what this journey of faith is really all about. And any of us who've been on this faith journey know that at times it is full of joy 
and excitement and happiness, but other times it's full of anxieties and despair. So these songs are very real. They are the stuff of real life. They ooze with joy in one moment and they ooze with despair in others. And they teach us what it's like to live this life of faith that we are called to. Last week we looked at, uh, we looked at two of the Psalms at once. We looked at Psalm 120 and Psalm 121. And this week we arrive at Psalm 123, which is this very, very short Psalm that Kyle read but it says some very profound things about life and about God and this thing called mercy that we talk a lot about in church. So there's three things I'd like us to look at this morning that help articulate what it's like to live on this journey of faith that we talk often about in church. And the first thing I'd like us to see about this psalmist is that this psalmist is really suffering. He's suffering under some sort of oppression that he's identified in his life. It says in verse 3, we've had more than enough contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. The occasion for this psalm is not a beautiful, wonderful, cheery occasion, but it's a sad one. A sad one in which the psalmist finds himself oppressed by the circumstances of his life. Now, we, you and I face all sorts of different types of oppression throughout our lives. And what I want to do is articulate that a little bit. We can all really think clearly of systematic oppression that often happens in our world. If you read through the Bible, you'll notice that God's, that God's people, uh, really at two occasions in the Old Testament, were oppressed by an outside people group. Earlier, they were oppressed and enslaved by the Egyptians. And then later in biblical history you see they are oppressed and conquered by the Babylonians. But it's not just in biblical history that we see this. We see this throughout human history all the time. Tragic moments where a stronger people group chose to oppress a weaker people group. Just a few years ago, I took a course that was called, uh, a postgraduate course that was called Justice and Reconciliation. And what we did is we looked throughout, uh, really, human history at efforts people have made to reconcile uh, places where tragic opposition happened. We looked at reconciliation movements that came out of uh, the American Civil Rights Movement. We looked at reconciliation that came out of a South African apartheid and and other oppressive regimes that's, that's happened in South America. But what we also noticed is that there's systematic oppression that happens in our world every day in all sorts of different places. I read an article this week in, in, on Baltimore Fishbowl about how even certain neighborhoods in Baltimore City could be t- defined as oppressive neighborhoods. Neighborhoods in which people live in where they have no option of escape, where they feel that the burden of their circumstances just bears down upon them in such a way that they feel trapped and they feel like they have no escape. Now, fortunately, many of us probably have not been a victim of of such systematic oppression that happens in our world from time to time. But often you and I fall victim to uh, situational oppression or situations or circumstances of our life that end up feeling oppressive, that weigh on our hearts and our minds in a way that we feel trapped in that circumstances of our life. We've all experienced all sorts of anxieties that life has for us. We've experienced uncertainties. We've felt the pressure of 
uh, a harsh boss or an unrelenting professor. We've felt the unfair expectations of a spouse or a parent that we just can't seem to please. We've felt the oppressiveness of a schedule that seems to bear down on us that we just can't seem to get relief from or expectations that are imposed on us or that we have for ourselves that we just can't feel like we can meet. Some of us feel the oppression of past sins that we've committed. We live with regret of things that we've done, mistakes that we've made, or missteps that just bear down on our soul and make us feel oppressed. We don't know what the situation the psalmist was dealing with in this situation, but we know that he was feeling oppressed. We know that he was feeling contempt and scorn from some sort of outside party in his life, and he felt trapped with no way of escaping the circumstances of his life, and he felt victimized. He felt victimized, unable to escape his circumstances. So all of us feel that from time to time. We feel that our situations oppress us. But there's another deeper oppression that exists in our life and often in our world as well. And the Bible calls that the, the spiritual oppression that comes from sin. Jesus, when he was here on earth, said, John chapter 8, that everyone who commits a sin is actually a slave to sin. Romans picks up on this by saying that each one of us, when we are born, because, because of Adam and Eve's sin and that first sin in the garden, that each and every one of us are born oppressed by sin. We are born enslaved to it. Not only does it enslave us, but it oppresses us each day. And like anyone who suffers from any sort of addiction, the powerful influence of sin is oppressive. And often the circumstances and the repercussions that come from our sin are also oppressive in our lives. You see, our propensity for sin and our our propensity for rebellion is a cruel master that rules over us and each and every one of us, whether we know it or not, each and every one of us yearns deeply to be freed from the oppression of sin. I don't know how many of you have seen, um, have seen Disney's most recent movie uh, called Frozen, but pretty much it is everything in my house right now. It is watched every day. The soundtrack is listened to every day. It is obsessed on by the three children that I have. And uh, we can sing most of the words to most of the songs by word, and by, by, you know, we know the words in our house, and they're sung all the time. And one of the songs that's become really popular with this movie, there's one lyric in it that I didn't even notice until I'd heard it about the 20th time. But the lyric goes, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I am free. Well, that lyric tells us a couple things. One, it tells us what I just said. It tells us that each and every one of us yearns deeply to be freed because we instinctively know that we are enslaved by sin. But we mistakenly think that freedom from sin or freedom from, the, from oppression means the absence of any sort of standards of right and wrong. We choose, we want to be, and we choose to be our own standard when it comes to life. We want to define what is right and wrong for us. And if you read the Bible, one of the, thing you'll real, one of the things you'll realize is the essence of sin is this very thing. The essence of sin is trying to obtain freedom 
by being our very own gods. You see, that's what Adam and Eve really wanted in the garden. It wasn't so much about the fruit that they ate of. What it was about was their desire to be free, their desire to be their own gods. They wanted to be free from any sort of standard that was imposed on them. They wanted to be their own master, and because of that, they committed that first sin. And you and I are born into that oppression. We are born into that enslavement. In fact, Eugene Peterson said that every relationship that excludes God ends up becoming oppressive. And we will never achieve freedom until we pick the right master. So all of us at some point in our lives have probably at least been familiar with systematic oppression or even felt it. All of us know what it's like to feel situational oppression in our lives as well. And all of us are dealing with the oppression of sin in our lives. And all of us deeply yearn to be freed from all of it. But the question of how we get that freedom... How we go about getting that freedom is potentially the most important question we will ever answer because the answer to that is not found inside of us. It's found actually outside of us in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why the psalmist, very powerfully in this psalm, he cries out to a sovereign God for freedom. He says in verse 1, "...to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens." Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. The psalmist cries out to a God that he believes is sovereign. I don't know how many of you have been paying attention to the news recently, but uh, I have been riveted by this mystery about this disappeared plane that has happened in Malaysia, going on now for nine days. I've developed all sorts of conspiracy theories in my own mind and theories about what happened, but I've been riveted by it. But one of the interesting things that that you notice about this, and anytime something else tragic happens in our world, in our society, is that people instinctively cry out to God. People that would not consider themselves believers in God, people that would uh, not even say they believe in God. We'll say things like, well, let's pray for the victims. Let's keep them in our thoughts. Let's pray to God for them. And they realize instinctively that they need something outside of us to rescue us from the circumstances of our life. You know, as I talk to people often, uh, most of the people you run into nowadays still believe in some sort of God. But what sort of God they believe in always is a very interesting discussion. I run into three types of people. There's the people that believe that God created this world, that he set everything in motion, but after he created everything, he just kind of stepped outside of it and is no longer involved. Maybe he's washed his hands of it. Maybe he doesn't care about it anymore. But for whatever reason, he set things into motion and then he stepped back and doesn't want anything to do with it anymore. I run into some people that believe this. Other people that I run into believe that that God is there, that he exists, but there's really nothing that he can do about the circumstances of our world. It's like he's on the sidelines alongside with us, hoping that we kind of figure it all out uh, and hoping that that the, the mess gets fixed, but he's powerless to do anything about it. That he's just as surprised by the evil of this world 
as you and I are. But what the Bible teaches is a very different picture about God. The Bible teaches that the, the, the true God, the one true God that it speaks of, is a God who's sovereign. And what that means is that nothing catches God surprise by surprise. Nothing at all is outside of his power. Nothing at all is outside of his control. And that whatsoever comes to pass is actually part of his plan and his purposes. And this is the kind of God that the psalmist cries out to. And it is the kind of God that you and I deeply desire. It is a capable God who can answer our most deepest desires. It's a God who, when we cry out to about the circumstances of our life, a God we believe can actually do something about it, who's in control of the events of our world. And when we cry out to him, just like the psalmist, we recognize that we can't be our own gods, that we can't figure this whole thing out on our own. And often we're reminded that the healthiest and wisest place in life is when we come to the recognition that he is the sovereign God, the sovereign creator, and we are his creatures. That he is in control of this world, and we need to stop trying to be our own gods and recognize who we are, because this is the God we actually deeply desire. You see, when we cry out to God, we recognize that he is God and we are not, And we come to a place where we realize that trying to be our own God, trying to free our own self from this oppression is never going to work. And actually, it only further enslaves us. So the psalmist takes comfort from crying out to a sovereign God, but he asks that sovereign God something very specific. He asks that sovereign God for mercy. And you see this in verse 3, where he cries out a very passionate cry, God, have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. You see, the psalmist, whatever his circumstance, he was so desperate for God's mercy. He just wanted relief. He didn't want revenge. He didn't want justice. He didn't cry out for all those things. He simply wanted relief from the circumstances of our lives. And the gospel tells us that the only way that you and I can truly be freed from the oppression of sin that exists in our lives is through the mercy of God. We can't free ourselves. We need God to free us through his mercy. But often, the vehicle in which God communicates his mercy to us is through our own afflictions. It's as if sometimes God has to open our eyes to our own affliction. He has to open our eyes to the foolishness of trying to be our own gods, of trying to figure it out on our own. C.S. Lewis said that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but often he shouts in our pain. And all of us have known what it's like to felt the pain of an oppressive circumstance. And it's as if God is reminding us that we can't do this on our own. We need his grace and we need his mercy. Charles Spurgeon said this, and it's on the front cover of your bulletin, that the Lord's mercy often rides to the door of our heart upon the dark horse of affliction. And as I mentioned this last week, one of the things that's captured me about these Psalms of Ascent is the thought uh, that, that the pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem would sing these on these religious festivals 
But what the scriptures also tell us that towards the end of his life, Jesus approached Jerusalem knowing that it would mean his arrest, his execution, and his death. And as he traveled to Jerusalem that one last time, as he traveled on the road and he ascended the hill to Jerusalem, that these psalms must have been the words that were stuck in Jesus' heart and stuck in his mind as he walked that path that he knew would involve his affliction, that he knew would involve his suffering, but he knew he had to do it in order for you and I to experience his mercy. He knew that the path in front of him was a path that led to affliction. But he walked that path so that when you and I can cry out for mercy, we can be confident that we will receive him. That when you and I cry out for freedom from our sin and the oppression that comes from it, we can receive it because the gospel tells us when we cry out in faith for mercy, we receive it because he was willing to walk the path of affliction on our behalf. His affliction made your redemption and my redemption possible. He made it possible so that you and I could be freed from the oppression of sin in our lives. I can remember when I came to terms with this one, one time when I was in high school. And I can remember at, at one time when I was in high school, I don't remember what year it was. I was going to a private school at the time. But I remember that I was feeling oppressed by the circumstances of my life. And I had to just kind of get away. I had to have some silence to kind of sort through it in my, whole, in my own heart. And I don't know how I did this, but somehow I managed to sneak out of wherever I was and steal my way into the school's chapel. And I was in that chapel and it was quiet and it was silent. There were no other students around. And I just sat in one of the pews, uh, really sitting before God, laying bare kind of all the circumstances that were oppressing me at that moment in my life. And I can remember, as clear as it was yesterday, I can remember at that moment I picked up a hymn book. And I just did this kind of thing where uh, it was just sitting in the pew, so I pick up a hymn book and I just flop it open and pray that God would show me something. And at that moment, the hymn book opened up to a hymn that was called Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners. And I want to read you some of the lyrics to it. It says, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me. Foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Jesus, what a help in sorrow. When the billows over me roll, even when my heart is breaking, He, my comfort, helps my soul. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. And in that moment, in that very silent chapel, when it was dark and all the lights were out and I was feeling oppressed by the circumstances of my life, I was met powerfully by God's mercy through the words of this hymn. So the question for us all here this morning as we're sitting here wrestling with this journey of faith and the circumstances of our life is do you feel that you need God's mercy? Do you need his mercy because of your sin? Do you need his mercy because of the circumstances that are pressing your life? Because the gospel tells us that we need to cry out to him in faith. And when we do that, we will receive his mercy. We will receive his presence knowing that he did everything that needed to be done in order to accomplish that mercy 
for you and for I.